Baboru Boye Baba Lawo Iboru Boye Baba Lawo Welcome to Lakura Podcast Decolonizing Latinx Health and Reclaiming Traditional Healing Lakura Podcast is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Hi, everybody. Welcome to La Cura Podcast. I am struggling right now. It's about 4.42 p.m. in my home a very full home. I actually have three kids and um, one of them is seven, one of them is three, and the other one is nine months. And it's a lot. It's actually been really hard to figure out when to record. I don't have a studio. I don't even have like a padded wall, which some folks do. I actually sit in front of my futon in my shrine room, which is nice, has like this really nice padded cover. Uh, which helps my voice not to bounce off the walls. And um, and I just sent everybody to one of the rooms so that I could actually just even record this intro. So is the life right now, and I'm grateful for it. And it's also hard to find quiet moments to be able to, to, um, to record La Cura. So I feel hella privileged right now to be able to just do this intro. I just want to share how much joy it has been for me doing the ofrendas, and some of the interviews and conversations that I've had with folks in movement that are doing really awesome things right now. And it's actually nourishing me a lot. And I hope that it's bringing some nourishment for you too. Today, we have a little special 40-minute episode, uh, which actually wasn't necessarily meant to be a La Cura episode, but I, I feel like it was important for us to feature it. It was originally a press conference, quote unquote, although right now it's really nearly impossible having press conferences for movement, given that we are not really able to be in each other's spaces in the way that we have before. So it was really a live presentation panel conversation by folks that I really love and admire. It was hosted by Mi Gente and the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. So in case you don't remember, Mi Gente is actually the, the main organization that houses this podcast, that birthed this podcast, and the organization that is my political home and what I'm a part of. And so, and why I do the podcast, really about lifting up Mi Gente and the beautiful work that we do across the country with Latinx communities. Mi Gente is, is an organizing hub. And it's fighting for Latinx and Chicanx rights. And as we grow in population numbers, so does the criminalization of our people, the lack of access to quality health care and education and just the ongoing erosion of true democracy and the sinking of financial opportunities. All that we can see pretty clearly right now, right? And so we need real transformative change that requires more from us. And obviously a really special part of that is, is healing, right? It's, it's politicized healing and it's centering our well-being and decolonizing um, our ways of thinking and our ways of being, but also fighting back. Uh, fighting back is at the center of a lot of that. And so trabajamos como hormiguitas um, to fill in the gaps in 
advocacy and inclusion, political and social power, solidarity and leadership within the large, diverse Latinx masses. So we work across race and language and place towards a true justice for our gente. And so that we know no one is coming to save us. So we have to save ourselves and each other, right? And so the reality is we are what we have. And it's a really beautiful tribe to have, right? Um, each other. This is the broader political movement that La Cura Podcast is situated inside of. And La Cura Podcast is, I think, a broader offering within that movement, a strategy in a lot of ways, right? Not the podcast itself, but the actual conversation around healing and, and decolonizing and reclaiming our traditional ways and um, our own humanity. All that to say, um, here is this really powerful live event that occurred last week called The Impact of COVID-19 on Latinx Peoples in the U.S. And we have some powerful speakers across movement, including Marisa Franco, who is the director of Mi Gente and one of the main um, founders of it. And so I just invite you to listen, right? Um, there is both the reality of the situation that's discussed, but it will also give you hope, right? Hope in, in, in the way in which people are organizing and in the way in which people are holding each other and in the way in which we are situating Latinx peoples in this moment. Because we know if we don't write our own history, tell our own stories, and the impact of the moment, nobody will. Uh, enjoy. Thank you for joining us. We are so excited to share this joint effort um, by the Council of Latin American Advancement and Mi Gente. We came together to co-author a timely report on the current economic and health crisis that Latinos are facing and struggling with across the country uh, because of COVID-19. To date, 22 million people have filed for unemployment in the last five to six weeks. I'm gonna repeat that number again, 22 million people. Most claims have been filed in California. However, if we would break down those numbers by workforce ratio percentage, Pennsylvania actually has the highest claims based on the, num the numbers in their workforce at 16% of all their workforce at this moment who have already filed for unemployment. Then they are followed by Ohio, and then California. Latinos are the second highest group with the most deaths due to COVID-19 to date. So what does this economic and health crisis mean to Latinos right now? And why are we dying at such high numbers? We know that we are 20% of the entire workforce and out of the approximately 12 million undocumented workers, 75% of them are undocumented. 75% of those undocumented workers are Latino. We are young, we are old people, we're women, we're all genders. And our speakers today are gonna talk about, and about why, why are we being impacted in such disproportionate numbers? And what does this mean to our gente and our community? So our first speaker is Yanira Merino. Yanira is the president of the Labor Council of Latin American Advancement, LACLA. 
They are the leading national organization for Latinos and their families focusing on organizing Latinos in the labor movement. So I'll pass it on to Yanira. Thank you for joining us. As our nation faces these unprecedented times, the Labor Council for Latin American Advancements has been focused on shedding light on a variety of issues regarding, regarding Latino and immigrant workers and the fight against COVID-19. We know that people of color are dying from the coronavirus at a disproportionate rate. We also know that racial minorities are amongst the hardest hit economically and that they make a disproportionate share of the workers and industries where layoffs are taking place. Many of them remain employed as essential workers. People in the construction industry, food industry, post office, to name a few. These workers are keeping us going while we're staying home safe. And maybe some of us even bored. We have to recognize the following, that they don't have other option but to work. Working from home is a privilege at this moment, and only few of us have it. So these workers are putting their lives at risk to earn a living. Let me share with you some of the socioeconomic conditions the Latino face before this crisis began. In 2016, Latinos represented an estimated 16.0% of the labor force. And it is estimated that by 2043, this segment of the population will constitute one-third of the total population in our country. This 16.8% of Latinos and immigrant workers are oftentimes concentrated in a growing low-wage economy. And in 2019, in 2018, I'm sorry, non-union Latinos, workers earn an average of $657 per week. How can you have savings to face this pandemic right now? In general, workers of color, color are more likely to get paid poverty wages as compared to white workers. In 2017, one out of four Latino workers lived below poverty line. This is twice as much as the national poverty rate. So why are we, why are these number, numbers important and why are we looking at the past? Simple, because these statistics have already played a pivotal role in what is happening today to the Latino immigrant workers as a result of this pandemic. As of August 2019, the unemployment rate among Latinos hover at a point at a 4.2 above national average of 3.7%. Up to now, there have been some 22 million people filing for unemployment. Nady shared with us those statistics already. Half of our Latino and immigrant communities have reported that they or someone they know has either lost their job or taken a pay cut. It is important to highlight that this number is unquestionably larger because the official unemployment count 
failed to include those who have not been able to file for unemployment due to the system over, being overwhelmed. And also, these numbers do not account for undocumented workers who have lost their jobs and are denied such a coverage. It took over a decade for Latino community to recover from the Great Recession of 2007 and 2009. This slow recovery the Latino face significantly impeded their ability to ascend into the middle class, thus eroding our nation's middle class and increased income disparity between the richest and the poorest people in this country. Having said this, it is urging the Latino and immigrant working families get included in any stimulus effort led by our government, as it is also crucial for them to have access to, more, uh, to medical attention and work protection. This is, this is not the time to discriminate. If COVID-19 has proven anything, it is that our nation depends on these men and women who are in the front lines. We demand a comprehensive relief package that not only protect all workers, workers of colors, but also to safeguard their livelihood. Thank you. Thank you, Yanira. Um, it's so important to just remember where our community was already at as we take a look of then the impact this current situation is gonna have and is already having in our communities. Let's hear now from Christian, a Mijente member from Chicago, who's also a worker leader in an Amazon warehouse. And he's gonna share with us more about what is his experience right now under, under this crisis. Hey, hey Mijente, hey everyone. Uh, yeah, I, I work in Chicago um, at a Amazon delivery station um, in Pilsen at uh, 28th and Western. And uh, my experience there is the experience, I guess, of an essential worker. All of Amazon continues running and um, they've basically been putting our, our lives at, at risk. Uh, with, many of these Amazon centers have been, have been serving as basically as vectors vectors of, of infection and uh, they Amazon was very slow to take any any sort of real precautions um, for so, so that we would uh, you know stay stay healthy when a uh, coronavirus pandemic started um, they basically just continued operating um, just like as if nothing was going on it wasn't really until we had to take action that they started making changes. It was after we found out that there was, there was, there was one coronavirus case um, that we called for an emergency meeting uh, between us uh, like as coworkers. We had already formed an organization um, by the name of DCH1 Amazonians United, our own worker organization. Just for the, for the past year, you know, starting with uh, fighting uh, for the right to regular and clean access to water, uh, fighting for air conditioning, fighting for um, better wages, um, fighting for health care, um, fighting for respect from our managers, um, fighting for um, paid time off, which we were already promised, but were being denied. Um, we had already formed this organization. And so like when we heard about these, these coronavirus cases, 
we were like, well, we, we got to do something. We got to do something now. Uh, we basically drafted uh, our demands, uh, formed a petition, launched the petition, um, got 100 uh, signatures on that petition, and then, you know, still saw that Amazon was not taking um, this issue seriously, that uh, they were acting with complete disregard for our lives and the lives of our loved ones. So um, we decided that we needed to, uh, to go on, on strike, that we needed to do safety strikes. And, and that's what we did. We uh, went on strike on, on Monday evening, on Tuesday morning, on Friday, uh, on Friday evening, and on a Saturday morning. Uh, the police uh, were called by Amazon management. The management uh, refused to take our petition. They refused to listen to our concerns. Uh, just a complete disrespect and disregard, even for our voices, even for our concerns. Um, we were demanding that Amazon shut down uh, the facility and clean it up and pay us for two weeks of quarantine pay. And the, I mean, the only thing that we would have met with were threats, threats of termination, threats of, of write-ups and, uh, you know, the site lead Dominic, Dominic Wilkerson and all the other managers too. They would just call the police on us. And just yell at us from from uh, from you know the police cars from from the police bullhorns, and the police would be there, um, you know, threatening us with citations. Um, saying, "Oh, we need to stay six feet apart. We can't be there. Uh, we can't be on private property, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And after after we engaged in these in these strikes, um, first many of our coworkers chose to not go in and join our strikes, and and that felt good because we kept we kept many of our coworkers safe. Second. Amazon um, uh, was not able to, to run all of the volume that it wanted to. Um, and a lot of this volume that Amazon is running is not essential goods. They say that it's essential goods. It's not. And so we, I think we are, we're also forcing Amazon to, to, act, to actually do what it says that it's doing publicly. Um, because also after the, the strike, they, they started providing masks. Um, you know, they started providing more uh, personal protective equipment. They started staggering our breaks so that there's less interaction, less, you know, uh, coming within six feet of each other. Um, so we, we definitely made things better. And the coworkers that, you know, stayed uh, that stayed home or didn't go into work really felt powerful um, because we were taking action and we were doing something about the conditions that we were facing. And, you know, we didn't have to wait for anybody to come come save us. You know, we were there uh, and, and we we were saving ourselves. We were taking care of ourselves because we need to take care of each other during this time. So um, now uh, Amazon has made some changes. It's not enough. We're still demanding a lot more. Um, you know, we're still demanding that Amazon actually only ship essential goods because there's so many needs that our people have, that our economy has, that, that are not being met. And Amazon, you know, having control over 50% of the online marketplace has a lot of power um, to really prioritize the manufacturing and distribution of goods that, you know, our healthcare workers, all the other essential workers, all the other vulnerable, vulnerable people that are at home, um, Amazon can, can prioritize shipping that stuff out and being a company that is providing for society's needs right now, um, instead of just for Bezos, Greed, and for all, you know, all these other managers that just want to make their bonuses and whatnot, and treat this like, uh, you know, like, like, like a, like as if it was a Christmas time again for them, you know, the, the peak. Now, um, after we took a stand, we're seeing a lot of retaliation from Amazon. Um, you know, they're trying to scare us. They're trying to intimidate us. They're giving us write-ups, uh, targeting us for, um, uh, for things like uh, violating the six-foot policy, uh, supposedly, while on, while on strike. Even though the managers were yelling out their threats to us uh, as they were like standing shoulder to shoulder. 
and uh, we're we're seeing uh, other write ups for for other things that um, that Amazon um, never enforces. They're just enforcing it on us. They've written some coworkers up for uh, supposed insubordination. Um, you know, they've written uh, they've written uh, another coworker up for supposedly not scanning their badge in uh, when we were going in to present their demand our demands. Um, so it, it's just clear retaliation for engaging in protected concerted activity. Um, and they're trying to scare us. They're trying to divide us. They're trying to stop our movement from go- growing, but it's too late. Um, the waves uh, that are already made and workers all over the United States and all over the world um, have signed our, our petition. We have over five or 6,000 signatures and they're reaching out to us. They're saying, you know, we have 15 cases of coronavirus at, at our warehouse. We have 10 cases and management isn't doing anything. Uh, what can we do? We saw that you all took action. How can we do that? Um, and so now we're, 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 you know, we're turning to our coworkers uh, wherever they're at and we're helping them figure out um, how they can take action, how they can get organized um, and they ha- how they can start fighting back. And it's, um, it's, it's horrible. It's dark times, but it's also very beautiful times because um, we're, we're just seeing more and more workers, like things just starting to click and people seeing that um, capitalism is not a system that is meant for us. Um, it's meant for the rich at the top and that uh, we need to save ourselves, that we need to take action and we need to protect ourselves, you know? I was talking with a coworker, uh, Ms. Betty, last night. Um, my my warehouse is, I would say, seventy five percent black, maybe fifteen uh, percent Latinx. Ms. Betty's uh, over seventy years old, uh, a black woman, and she's uh, managers are over here. You know, these big white managers look like frat guys are over here writing her up, pushing her to to scan faster when she's already doing everything she can. When her life is at risk by just going in there, you know, she's just she's just going in there trying to trying to pay for her house. Um, and so it's, it, it's really ridiculous. Um, and people are really getting fed up and it's, it's on us. Um, it's on us to, to begin, you know, helping out and organizing, um, helping our people get organized and, and make those demands um, wherever, wherever we can to, to make this society work for us. Thank you so much, Christian, for joining us. I know you've been having the night shifts, so it really meant a lot that you would make time to be up and like sharing with us during, during this afternoon. So thank you and all your coworkers out there in Chicago fighting for each other. Like you said, we, we know that, you know, the title of this report is COVID-19 doesn't discriminate, but the government does. And so this is a conversation we need to be having right now. I would like to introduce uh, next our um, Rosa Lozano. Rosa is a national strategic organizer with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, IUPAD. IUPAD represents about 200,000 workers in the construction industry in both the U.S. and Canada. Rosa? Thank you, you Nady. Um, well, first, I'd just like to thank mi gente, LACLA, and the many workers that um, shared their testimonies to uplift this issue, right, of how COVID is impacting the Latinx community and Christian, thank you as well um, for joining us. So this issue in particular um, is very personal for our union um, because our workforce and in construction overall um, is increasingly Latino. Um, It's increasingly immigrant and undocumented. And what that means to us in the midst of this pandemic is that since construction workers have been deemed essential in many places across the country, 
they're being forced into making an impossible choice, um, which is to risk their lives and the lives of their families in order to support themselves. Um, and in the best cases um, are being exposed um, to COVID-19 um, despite having personal protective gear because it is extremely difficult to um, practice social distancing on a work site. Um, in the worst of cases, they're intentionally being sacrificed um, by their employers um, in the name of profit uh, because their lives weren't really valued before this pandemic. And so we can't expect that they will be valued now. We've seen this play out um, from anywhere um, from lack of safety gear um, to lack of safety training, to wage theft, to even deaths on the job that were non-COVID related. Um, so we definitely can't expect that that tide would turn now, um, especially when it comes to providing um, very, you know, protective gear that's already limited um, for frontline workers. Um, so given this reality, making the lack of access to potentially life-saving testing and treatment um, to workers because of immigration status is even more egregious, right? Um, and in fact, for our union, um, we've already felt um, the impact of, of this crisis um, within our own family as we've had eight members so far um, die from COVID-19. And of the eight, five uh, were Latino workers um, that were still working when they fell ill. Um, and that's Luciano Gomez, Fernando Gallego, Jose Vasquez Herrera, Travis Graham, Bob Russo, Kilder Diaz, Victor Torres, and Roy Tavios. And this is just that we know of, and this is in our union. I can't imagine what those numbers are in the non-union, non-organized workforce. So for many of us, I mean, for, for many of you, you might ask yourselves, given that, you know, why would workers, why would these workers risk, take this risk um, and continue to work? And, you know, our response is that, well, by nature of the construction industry, if you don't work, you don't get paid. And if you're fortunate enough to have any kind of benefits either directly provided by your employer or through a union contract, those two, let's say, for example, health insurance, those benefits are also dependent on your ability to work. And this is a reality that has been exacerbated by COVID-19 um, as 50% of work sites, construction work sites across the country have already shut down. And we are expecting nearing 90%, um, you know, at the peak of, of this pandemic um, or, you know, before it's over. And what Congress is saying that it's attempting to address this issue, what we know from talking to directly to our membership and to workers on the ground on the front lines is that, you know, the, the stimulus relief um, is excluding many, many workers inside and outside of unions. And either by leaving them completely out, partially out, um, but in the end, just the same were impacted um, across the board. And so, as an added layer to that reality is that, you know, we're staring up uh, 
at the bottom of a barrel of a gun as we're awaiting two very critical court decisions um, from the Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court around background TPS, which could strip potentially um, 300,000 working people and their families um, from status of status. Um, and the result of that would be a widening pool of people that are denied critical relief and recovery from this pandemic. So our union um, in the midst of all of this is advocating and supporting efforts in Congress to expand Medicaid for all workers, to extend and subsidize COBRA um, for working people that have that are in real time losing access to their health insurance um, because of massive layoffs that they make life-saving COVID-19 testing and related treatment um, available and accessible to anyone and everyone that needs it, regardless of immigration status, um, that union workers' pensions are protected, um, that you know it's not just the corporations that get bailed out, and that um, frontline workers get safety protections, right? Um, and that means um, you know having investing in uh, OSHA oversight, it means um, Yes, personal protective gear, safety training, um, anti-retaliation uh, protections to Christian's point, right? Um, in addition to higher pay for working during this crisis, paid sick leave, um, just to name a few. Uh, but we are also still and will continue to, no matter what, do what we do best, which is organize, organize, organize. Because as is true on a construction job site, it is certainly true in our society that we are only as safe as the most vulnerable worker or person um, in our universe. And that's our driver. And we're gonna continue to push forward both in advocacy and, and um, in demand of workers' rights and to hold accountable those that played political games and sacrificed our lives, right? Um, for the sake of, of, of profit and maintaining the status quo. I'll, I'll end with that. Thank you, Rosa. I, I really feel like we can't really go on with this conversation with just like honoring the lives of those workers and every single one of the workers out there that is putting their lives at risk every day because they have no choice because we have failed them completely. So I'm gonna ask everyone to just, let's do a minute in silence to remember these workers. Thank you, everyone. And, you know, for all those workers, presente. You know, they're going to be forever presente in this fight and in the future generations to come. Um, at this point, I would like to uh, introduce our final speaker, Marisa Franco. Marisa is executive director of Mi Gente. Mi Gente is an online and offline political home for thousands of Latinx people across the country. Gracias, Neri. Thank you. And greetings to everybody. It's great to be uh, with you all today and um, appreciate everybody's words. It, it felt important to partner with LACLA and in this report and, and publishing and thank you to everybody's work to make it happen. 
I think the report is trying to paint a real time picture of the impact of this of this virus, because as there is a debate raging about when to when to open up again and a debate raging about relief and who deserves relief, we can't lose sight of the very specific impacts. And so I hope folks can like hold that to put something like this as a crisis is raging. Um, we did our best to, to paint an accurate and real picture um, and shine a light on communities that no one is really thinking of and are forgotten even in times of not a crisis like this. And it's important to then um, highlight, you know, Yanita's words at the beginning of this, talking about the last, the great, the, the recession that happened over a decade ago. And that the reality through all of our lived experience that lived through that is that crises, and in this case, a virus spreads through the existing, uh, existing forms of exploitation, existing oppressions, they're, they're repeated. And so we can't lose sight of that. And that has to be front and center in conversations about relief. And this report is looking to really communicate what that impact is. I think what we can see with COVID, a couple of things that, that maybe we can draw prior to this, um, maybe weren't, wasn't as clear, even though it's still true. One is that how interdependent we are as people, as communities, that we actually need each other. Two, we are only as strong as the most vulnerable among us. In this crisis, if government, if uh, businesses, if bosses continue to think that we will overcome this and it will not dramatically weaken us in a very significant structural way, if they think they can do that with only helping this strata of the population and not all of us, they are very mistaken. And last, that a thriving economy is not healthy billionaires. It's not made up of healthy billionaires. It is made up of healthy, stable communities. You cannot have a thriving economy without that. And so as these debates rage on about, you know, when to open up again and who deserves relief and how much money is it and who gets bailed out and who doesn't, um, I think we have to hold that, you know, when, once the shelter in place is lifted, it's not going to go back to normal for a very long time. This report, in essence, is trying to actually name, if we're not taking into account how people are being impacted, then we cannot develop solutions that adequately respond to the crisis. And um, Latinos are very much being impacted by this. And, you know, we, as mi gente, you know, this is um, both a shining a light, but also it's a call to action. There has, there is a political fight in this country. We have an election coming up. And what we have seen thus far is that Latinx people are very called and are very moved by political agendas, by political fights that actually solve and respond to the crises of our time. So to us, I think very important demands to lift up is the cancellation of rent, mortgage payments, evictions, um, a demand for universal health care for all people, and specifically reproductive health care and access to that, a moratorium on deportations, um, that does not then include a ramp up of surveillance and the erosion of our civil liberties. Uh, release of folks in federal prison and detention centers and a pathway to citizenship for all immigrants in this country. Um, we're also calling for full parity for Puerto Rico and a cancellation of the debt in the island. 
a cancellation of student debt. Latinos are the youngest demographic in this country. Therefore, what is happening to our future, our, our future leaders um, in terms of access to education, what kind of education people have and what kind of debt they're in as a result of seeking that education needs to be addressed. And then finally, we can't lose sight that um, this election it is coming in November and we need, we are calling for the creation of a task force that looks at how is it that people can, everyone who is eligible to vote can register to vote, that people can safely vote and that those votes are counted. We cannot, part of this report is shining the light and part of it is a call to action and our community has been in motion. And, you know, this is why the, the story that Christian is sharing is so, is, is so motivating that in a time where folks are literally fearful or like, you know, you're going to work and you're not sure what's going to happen as a result of going to work just to try to earn a living, that they're still organizing. And I think that is, that is leadership that we should all follow. That in this time, we don't have to wait for someone to, to give a damn about our community. We have to give a damn and we have to do something about it. We can and should tackle this pandemic, this crisis in a way that does not just bail out the billionaires and bail out big industry and big business. Um, and it is incumbent upon us to do that because there will be no full recovery. Um, there, will be, there will be no sort of forward motion that putting us in a position of strength. Um, in fact, if we do not act, if how we resolve or address this crisis simply repeats the existing injustices and inequities, then, then we're actually going to come out even weaker on the other end of it. And that is, I think, a, a, a call to action in this story that we're trying to tell in this report. Thank you. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Francisca Porches Coronado, edited by Rafael Maya. Music is by Rafael Maya. You can find us on social media at La Cura Podcast. Bye bye, la woo.